At this time, I'd like to welcome to our pulpit the preacher this morning, Reverend Phil Shade. Phil has been in the Southerton area for some time and has been involved with church planning since he was ordained in 2013. Phil is a reverend with the Anglican Diocese of the Living Word. You may have seen the diocese here as they held their annual missions conference and synod here uh, for the last couple of years in the spring. Phil is currently a deacon in charge at St. Peter's Anglican Church on Allentown Road in Satterton. He is a graduate of Karen University and has studied at the Reform Episcopal Seminary. As a fun fact, uh, Phil and his wife own and operate the Broad Street Grind Coffee House in Satterton. Uh, Phil, thank you for joining us this morning. Come teach us from God's Word. Good morning. What a privilege it is for me to be here at Lighty's Church. I, <laughs> it, uh, I know many of you from our years here in Souderton, and uh, we at St. Peter's and the Anglican Diocese of the Living Word, as Jim mentioned, uh, have been praying for you especially in the last few months. And we give God thanks for your ministry and for your witness here in our community. And we are grateful for your partnership together in the gospel. As many of you know, our diocese, as Jim mentioned, of 44 churches is scattered across 17 states. And each year since 2019, it's been our privilege uh, to meet here at Ladies Church uh, for worship uh, together, for coming together around the table of the Lord as a diocese, for, for fellowship, for Bible study and teaching, and for ordination and the laying on of hands of men who have been called to gospel ministry in this country. And this will bring you greetings, particular privilege enjoy to bring you greetings from our bishop, Bishop Julian Dobbs. And uh, he sends his greetings and his prayers to Lighty's Church, and we give thanks for you. We're looking forward to being back here again this coming May in 24, once again for our diocesan synod. This morning, as we prepare to open God's word together, from the passage that Will read, I invite you to join me in this simple prayer. Heavenly Father, we would see Jesus today. Yes. Heavenly Father, we would hear Jesus today. Yes. Heavenly Father, we would be moved to love and serve Jesus today. Yes. Amen. Amen. It's my understanding that together you have been considering the Gospel of John for the last few months, and our brother Nate Sims finished up chapter 7 last week, which brought us to chapter 8. I chose to skip the first 12 verses because there's some question in, uh, among scholars as to whether they're part of the original manuscript and just jump to verse 12 this morning. So that's why Will read that passage for us. John's gospel is unlike the other three. 
Gospels, from the very first paragraph, it's clear that the Apostle John broke sharply from the styles of the other Gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Each of them focused on events, the birth, the baptism, following Jesus through the bustling marketplaces and villages throughout Judea and Galilee, each showing a different aspect of our Lord. In Matthew's Gospel, we see Jesus as the son of David, the rightful king to sit on David's throne. In Mark's Gospel, as the servant who came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And in Luke's Gospel, as the God-man, fully man and yet very God, and as the Nicene Creed says so eloquently, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Ghost of the Virgin Mary and was made man. In contrast then, and unlike the three previous gospel writers, the Apostle John highlights and focuses our attention on Christ's divine nature. He is God, the very Logos, or the Word. In the very first sentence of his, apostle, of his gospel, the Apostle John writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John's gospel account focuses our attention on the eternal word, the Logos, who became flesh and dwelt among us, God incarnate. The gospel of John spells out clearly who Jesus is. If Jesus is who he said he was, then I must fall at his feet and worship him, as my friend Martin Rajnur said as a young Hindu man in India when he came to Christ. The basic claims of the Christian faith from Jesus' claim that he and the Father are one cut to the chase of who he is and who he claims to be exposing our own human and lost condition, and without him, we are hopelessly lost. Which is why if I'm going to share a piece of literature with someone of John, not know Christ, I always prefer to give them a gospel of John. John's written word, uh, the God's written word, pardon me, is quick and powerful to convict us of sin. And as the writer to the book of Hebrews said, it is sharper than a two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and spirit. And by the way, the Pocket Testament League will provide Gospels of John at no charge to churches if you want to use them. You can even get them printed with uh, Lightish Church on, their, on the name. And I would encourage you to, to take a look at those. Which brings us to our text this morning from John chapter 8. Before us is the second 
of seven I am statements of Jesus, which are recorded for us and found in John's Gospel. In verse 12, Jesus says, I am. You will never walk in the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I am the light of the world. This claim of Jesus still rings crystal clear and distinct to us almost 2,000 years later in our own day and age. When there is such vagueness and cloudiness in thought, in reasoning, morals, and behavior, in the age in which we live and find ourselves today. In the verses that follow, which, we read, which were read to us this morning by Will, we observe the familiar response of the Pharisees to this remarkable claim of Jesus that he is the light of the world. As you've been working through the Gospel of John, this response of the Pharisees is probably no surprise to you. So I want to particularly focus our thoughts then this morning on this claim of Jesus, I am the light of the world. To help put Jesus' claim into context for us, the Apostle John actually sets the scene for us a little further into the passage. Look with me at verse 20 if you have your Bibles, and I would encourage you to open them to John 8, verse 20. If you have your Bibles open, John tells us that Jesus spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put. The Jewish historian Josephus provides a detailed description of Herod's temple, and we learn from his writing, and its portico served as a gathering place, and its portico sheltered merchants and money tiles. This area was known as the court of the Gentiles. A stone fence and a rampart surrounded the consecrated area that was forbidden to the Gentiles in Jesus' day. The temple proper began then on the east with a court of women, each side of which had a gate and each corner had a chamber. The court was named for the surrounding balcony on which women observed the annual celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles. The western gate of the court, approached by a semicircular staircase, led to the court of the Israelites, which was that portion of the court of the priests open to all male Jews. Surrounding the inner sanctuary, the court of priests contained the sacrificial altar and a copper laver for priestly ablutions. This court was itself surrounded by a wall broken with gates and chambers. It is then in this second court, the court of the women, that John indicates that Jesus was speaking on this occasion. Supporting that balcony which the women stood on were huge colonnades, and in between those colonnades were 13 brass treasure chests shaped like a trumpet with a narrow opening at the top, and then they widened at the bottom to receive the offerings of the people of Israel. 
Each of the 13 treasure chests, we're told, were designated for a particular type of offering uh, that was used in the temple. And so as a result, the treasury was a very busy place in the daily life of the, of the temple. Notice with me this morning that Jesus chose to teach some number of people in order to reach the maximum, the greatest number of people. As you will recall, the Apostle Paul and the other disciples did the same in the book of Acts, whether it was a discourse on Mars Hill in Athens or going into the public places where people gathered to teach, Paul used these gathering places to his advantage. This is a lesson for our church today. Go where the people are. The day has passed for us to be able to sit in our churches and expect the lost and those without Christ to wander into the door. Christ's last command to us was go and make disciples. The words go and make are offensive commands indicating offense. They're not defensive movements. We need to go where people are and where they gather if we're going to reach our community and our world. How and where Jesus taught gives us a strategy to follow as we plan our outreach in and to our various communities. Secondly, notice with me that Jesus' teaching in John 8 follows closely after the Feast of Tabernacles, which I referred to earlier and which had just been celebrated. We know this because in the previous chapter, John 7, verses 1 to 3, John tells us that the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles was at hand. During this feast, on one particular night of the feast, a celebration would occur in the court of the women where Jesus called the landing and teaching. And it was called the illumination of the temple. If you're familiar with Jewish custom or Jewish history, during that period or during that particular night, great candelabras were placed in the court uh, there, and as night approached, the priest would come and light these massive candelabras, and the blaze of the candles would light up the entire temple and the surrounding courtyards in the midst of the dark Judean night. It is following then these recent events that Jesus comes into that same court and says, I am the light of the world. To those gathered around Jesus and hearing his claim, being devout Jews and knowing their own history, their thoughts would have gone back to the stories of the wanderings through the desert where the pillar of fire led the Jewish people uh, it, it, during, during the night and provided light along the way. And more recently, in the same way that those large candelabra lit Herod's temple and the surrounding courtyards 
and neighborhoods of Jerusalem. And then their minds probably went back to the words of their own King David, the psalmist who wrote, writes in Psalm 27, God is our light and our salvation. It is then this very Jewish understanding and context that Jesus walks into the temple and cries out, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness and will have the light of light. Having then explored together the context of Jesus' claim this morning, let us look briefly together at the content of what he is saying. First, Jesus' statement was a clear claim as to his deity. He was saying to the Jewish people gathered, I am the Messiah. I am the one that was promised of old by the prophets of the Old Testament. Jesus' listeners clearly understood his claim, which is why we see the visceral reaction of the Pharisees against it. Go back, if you would, with me once again to John chapter 1 in your Bibles. John chapter 1 and verse 4. John says, In him was light, life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Look down just a couple verses to verse 9. John says, Christ, the Logos, the Word, is the true light which gives light to everyone. It is this Logos coming into the world. It is clear that Jesus is identifying himself with and as God to those gathered around, which is why the Pharisees had such a visceral reaction. Secondly, as the light of the world, Jesus exposes the dark and hidden natural state of men and women, revealing that we are in bondage to our own darkness and sin. The Apostle John, writing in his first epistle, says, this is the message we have heard from him, and we proclaim to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. The apostle goes on to say in verse 6, but if we walk in the light as he, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. The Apostle Paul, in his epistles, bears this claim out. Consider with me, in Paul's epistle to the Colossians, take a your Bible, if you would, and look with me at Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. Colossians 1, verse 13. We read, He, that is Christ, 
has delivered us from the domain of darkness. The word domain of darkness gives us the sense that of a, perhaps of a castle or a dungeon where we were confined and has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Paul elaborates on this father in his epistle to the Ephesians. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Look at verse 17 of, of Ephesians 4, if you have been able to get there. You must no longer walk as Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God. One chapter over, in chapter 5, Paul sums up what he is saying in verse 8, when he says, For one time you were darkness, but now are you light in the world. Walk then as children of light. How is your walk this morning? How is my walk? Are we walking together as children of light? Jesus said in Matthew 5, You are the light of the world. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Matthew chapter 5. As a child, growing up in Sunday school, I remember singing this little song, This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. At a young age, I'm not sure I completely captured what that was saying, but the sublimity, perhaps the transcendence and nobility of this simple childlike song came to me many years later. In my own tradition, the order of worship begins with what we call the liturgy of the word. It includes hymns and scripture readings and a sermon, and then it climaxes in the Holy Communion. Sandwiched between these two sections where gifts are we call the offertory, where gifts are presented to God. It is at this moment that the worship celebrant recites to the congregation, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. You may ask, why a sentence of scripture about light? Why not a sentence about money or treasure? After all, isn't that what the offertory is all about? But as I began to be formed and understand the liturgy, I began to see and understand. An offering is not just about gifts of money and tithes. It's also about offerings and oblations of our lives and our labor to the Lord. It's about worship. The offertory occurs in the middle of a worship service. What is worship, you may ask? Our contemporary culture might identify it simply as 
gathering together to sing some praise music. But worship is more than just that, while that is worship. It is the activity of ascribing worth to God every activity that we do in our daily lives is offered to God in worship. Offerings and oblations are only tokens and symbols of the real gift. The real gift is a life which is consecrated to God. If God is who he says he is, and if God is who I know him to be through natural reason, and Holy Scripture, then the totality of my life belongs to God. And the only possible way that I can ascribe worth to Him is to give myself to Him. With our, within our, my own liturgy, there's a communion prayer which reads, And here we offer and present unto Thee, O Lord, ourselves, our souls, and our bodies to be a reasonable, holy, and living sacrifice unto thee. It is to Christ our Lord and Savior who is most worthy of our worship that we gift ourselves, our souls, and our bodies. It is to our Lord Jesus and our Savior who said, I am the light of the world. He that followed Followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. You see, I am the light of the world, goes before or precedes, ye are the light of the world. Or perhaps I can say it this way, you, ye are the light of the world, proceeds from, I am the light of the world. It is the light of Christ that illumines a consecrated life. Christians are to be the light of the world only insofar Christians are the light of the world only insofar as they reflect the light of Christ in their person and in their soul and in their body. The great Anglican hymn writer Francis Ridley Please captures our response this morning. Please allow me to close by reading these familiar lines to you. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days. Let them flow in ceaseless praise. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my heart, it is thine own. It shall be thy royal throne. Take my voice and let me sing always only for my king. Take my intellect and use every power as thou shalt choose. Take my will and make it thine it shall be no longer mine. Take myself, and I will be ever only all for thee. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.